0: The data suggested, and most of us in the corporate world would support it, we hate meetings. But you know what I bet we hate even more than regular meetings? Meetings in the bathroom.
1: Have you ever drawn a heart and thought, you know, this doesn't really look like an actual human heart, and then wondered, so where did this image even come from, and how did we begin to associate it with love? Well, we'll do our best to explain the complicated history behind it. You know what that is? That's uh, an attempt at Jurassic Park, is what it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> the theme to Jurassic Park. Whether
0: you love the movie Jurassic Park like me, or you had dinosaurs on your bedsheets as a kid, we really love dinosaurs as a society. So you'd think after all this time, we'd have discovered most, if not all of them, right? Not even close. All of that on this edition of Commute, let's get it. Jay, if you're like most of us dads, let's be honest, and listen up if you've always suspected this from your spouse, okay, confessional here on Commute, but Jay, let's be honest, sometimes us dads, we go to the bathroom and we just kind of hang out in there for a minute. (laughs) Like, especially if you have kids, it just gives you a second in your own little world that at least in theory is entirely private.
1: I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to be saying this out loud, like it's kind of unspoken. <laughs> it's kind of like the free well, it's kind I of like the Freemasons. Bra- I'm a code. Yeah, it's like the Freemasons I'm breaking or something. Some kind of I guess code. since we're since we're doing it. Yeah, I mean it is true. Uh, if if I'm spending a little bit extra time in the bathroom and you think he's not really doing anything in there, you'd be right. And, and also the problem is sometimes it backfires. So
0: uh, I'll admit um, some uh, I've been going number 1 before, which is ping And, uh, I'm of course taking clarifying that. Yeah. I just wanted to clear that up (laughs) and I'm taking my time of course. And I have accidentally dropped my phone into the toilet.
1: Like how, like how often it's only
0: happened once. And I immediately got rid of that phone and got a new one
1: because you can't clean it. I mean, no, you could clean it. You can't you really can't clean a it. A whole phone? Like right. a whole phone you're just gonna replace it? Well to me it was old anyway, so
0: it was kinda into life. Yeah, but you're
1: you're notorious for like going through phones. <laughs> this is a whole different conversation. But you've I mean in the time I've had one phone, I mean you've had like six. Moving on.
0: Jay, whether <laughs> you prolong it or not, the bathroom really should be sort of a private safe place, right? Like a den that provides all of us with not only relief in terms of a bodily function, but relief in that we get just a second to breathe. It's the rare place that is both public and private when you go to do your business. But Jay, what about other kinds of business that go on in there? It may be hard to believe, but throughout history, the bathroom, albeit in a perverse, weird way, has often transformed into an extension of the office. Perhaps no one is more infamous for using the bathroom for toilet meetings than former American President Lyndon B. Johnson. In fact, in historian Robert Dalick's biography, Flawed Giant, Lyndon Johnson in his Times, 1961 to 1973, he writes about Johnson's abuse of AIDS, shouting at them in public and calling them into the bathroom for meetings while he sat on the toilet. And Jay, while I think we can all agree (laughs) that forcing people to have a meeting with you while you use the bathroom is questionable at best and abusive at worst, it's also something that displays just how much power a superior, like in this case LBJ, could hold over their employees. Another prominent bathroom meeting extraordinaire was former Manchester United soccer manager Sir Alex Ferguson. According to reporting from Inside Hook, Ferguson did differ from Johnson in that the meetings didn't seem to be as much about emotional domination as they were just about multitasking. Ferguson, as you can guess from (laughs) someone who regularly had bathroom meetings while he was sitting on the toilet, felt like he was never off the clock. Unsurprisingly, though, Jay, most folks say bathroom meetings are a big no-no. Shocker. Peter Turla, a time management expert and former member of NASA, told Inside Hook, there's a time and place for everything, and having a meeting in the bathroom is not the place. Multitasking has its limits. And Patricia Napier Fitzpatrick, founder and president of the Etiquette School of New York, echoes those sentiments. I believe business meetings should be held in business settings, said Napier Fitzpatrick, and I have no idea why men would choose to meet in a bathroom for a meeting. Still, though, these meetings do occur even today. A former Amazon employee, and it's worth noting that the online retailer has been accused at times over the years of prioritizing work over wellness, described the men's room as an accepted extension of the traditional office in many ways at Amazon. There have been less reports about these kinds of meetings occurring in female bathrooms, though. The only public records of such meetings occurring center on space issues and not around just being weird like us guys. These meetings happened out of necessity, Jay, unlike LBJ's legendary meetings that happened just because he could and did. So, Jay, while it's weird, it happens. How about you? Have you ever been called into a bathroom meeting? Or better yet, have you ever tried to host
1: one yourself? <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I don't ever get to use the bathroom when I'm at work. Like I, I don't have a normal bathroom schedule because if I leave the classroom, I'm leaving like 30 kids alone. So it's kind of one of the downsides of being a teacher. You just don't get to use the bathroom whenever you want. Now, one of my favorite bathroom stories is my father-in-law
0: um, used to work at a, a, a plant, so an oil refinery. And sometimes he and some colleagues, some coworkers, would travel to other refineries and work for a couple of days at, like, an off-site location. And so when you're in those kind of situations, they have to bring in bathrooms for you. So they'd bring in, like, a double-wide or a trailer or something and gut it and put toilets in them. And they wouldn't put, like, stall doors. It was just <laughs> toilets. So there were no doors or anything. Apparently, the way it went was you just walk in there you see a couple guys just just sitting on their toilets and they just you hey and they go hey <laughs> how you doing and then you just sit down you
1: truly don't appreciate like how hilarious the world is sometimes because imagine you're doing this super serious work with somebody like you're reviewing plans you're doing you know all these <laughs> engineering tasks and then you gotta go like take a dump right beside the same guy you said
0: you'd walk in and like sometimes you'd lock eyes accidentally with somebody <laughs> and they'd
1: go how you doing <laughs> or you do it, and then you have to go have the super serious work meeting, and you just you know, had to do this thing. Exactly. <laughs> how, 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 how you doing? <laughs> Today, in this segment, we are going to be talking about hearts, and we're going to be talking about love, and how these two things came to be associated with one another. So on the topic of love... What uh, What is something that you have done in the past to maybe attract somebody that you're looking back on in hindsight and you're kind of thinking, you know, maybe that wasn't the best move?
0: I realize that these kinds of stories just make me sound so old. <laughs> Uh, I'm in my mid 30s. That you know, kids today always have to say that, but really, kids today have cell phones, and you can text each other, and, and things are just different. So you know, back then when we were younger, and we've talked about this before, like if you wanted to call a girl, you had to call her house and go through her dad, <laughs> like, "Hey, is uh, Sarah home?" You know that kind of thing. So something else we did is in seventh and eighth grade, you'd write notes to girls, and you'd pass it to them in the hallway, so whoever your girlfriend was. So you're changing classes, you wrote them a note, you give it to them, they write back to you later. it's truly a lost art. And it was a ton of work. It was a ton of work. It, It was, because you're having to write the note during class when you're supposed to be doing work, you're not. Half the time, you're trying to write like a poem, and so it's really difficult. If the teacher ever found it, you were mortified because they're going to read this slop that you're writing, and you're on like, and it's not your best work either. You're on like your fifth poem. They don't know that. The best poem's already been given.
1: This is like, I've been doing this every day for a week. I would imagine these notes that you wrote back in the past had uh, some heart symbols drawn on them every once in a while. And if you've ever looked at the heart symbol and kind of thought, this doesn't really look like a heart, and uh, since the heart doesn't really have anything to do with emotion. Like how did we begin to associate the heart with love? And um, so I started digging into this and I thought the history was really interesting. So Dave, heart symbols actually go back way farther than you may think. You can find pieces of pottery with the symbol on them that date all the way back to like 3000 BC. But the symbol, while it would classify it as a heart today, if you saw it, it didn't necessarily mean that back then. In these instances, the symbol is a simplification of a fig or an Ivy leaf or some kind of other plant, not of the human heart and not specifically as a symbol to designate love and affection. The Greeks and the Romans also made pretty common work of the heart symbol in art and pottery, but again, the symbol seems to probably be more representative of specifically leaves in most cases. Now, the trail from there, Dave, it goes a little cold in tracing how the symbol made the jump from being a stylization of a leaf to a symbol of romantic love, but some theories are out there. One is that the specific leaf that the symbol was designating grew to be more representative of a specific plant called sylphium which is a plant used in ancient times as a very effective form of birth control. So you can sort of connect the dots on that and see how a plant associated with that may evolve into a symbol of romantic love. Now, the most widely accepted explanation, though, is a little less exciting as most of these things are. As Europe entered the Middle Ages and the power of the Catholic Church grew, the way science was studied in Europe fundamentally changed. The church suppressed years and years of anatomical research, much of it from the Middle East, and autopsies, which had long been the most effective way of understanding the human body, were officially outlawed. This set anatomical science back decades, and doctors were forced to essentially describe human anatomy rather than sketch it out in its actual form. Really, if you weren't performing surgeries, you probably didn't know what an actual human heart looked like if you were alive in the Middle Ages, even if you went to a university or were even a scientist. Descriptions of hearts, while simplified, sort of evolved through the Middle Ages from cone-like shapes to the more modern heart shape we're used to seeing today, and as art, particularly religious art, began to adopt the symbol, it gradually took the place as our actual understanding of what a heart looked like to the best of our knowledge— A lot of historians will tell you that these two theories, the anatomy understanding and the plant understanding of the symbol, that really both may be true in some way. And the symbol just sort of meshed together into something representing not just a heart, but the emotion of love as well. So the bizarre symbol, while it may not look like a heart and the emotion of love doesn't even originate there, it originates in the brain, it still has become a core part of our culture and even cultures across the world. And while other cultures may not directly share the heart, for example, in Japan, the heart symbol is known as kokoro, meaning heart or mind in Japanese. It took on its own unique form, representing a stylized four-leaf clover rather than the classic Western heart shape, but it is still meant to convey the same message of love and affection. So ultimately, Dave, symbols have really complicated, often rich histories, and sometimes when you take the time to dig deeper, you really realize how complex it can truly be. This is from uh, that great reputable source, (laughs) list25.com. So here are the top
0: three, (laughs) very legit. Here are the top three symbols that have changed their meaning over time. So we've got number three, the thumbs up signal, which I use quite often. Uh, Though somewhat debated, sources claim that the origin of the thumbs up or thumbs down came from the Roman gladiators. Roman yeah. crowds used the hand gesture at the end of a uh, of a gladiator match to decide whether the gla- the defeated gladiator should live or die, not uh, to just tell somebody, hey,
1: good job. I like your painting. <laughs> well, when it was backwards, too, the thumbs up meant that you would die. and The thumbs down meant that you would live. So we ah, flipped see? it at some point, too. <laughs> Number two is the
0: middle finger. So, Jay, obviously, we don't need to say what the middle finger means today. But back in ancient Greece, it uh, more or less meant that you wanted to uh, mate with somebody. You were interested in a a, a possible relationship. (laughs) So we'll leave that one there. I'd still not start maybe using my middle finger. Uh, And number one, now this one, I I wouldn't really take this one and do anything with it. It's just probably not going to work out well for you. This would be the swastika. Okay, so in most parts of the West, obviously the swastika is synonymous with Nazi Germany. But in reality, this symbol of good fortune and well-being has been a sacred symbol in Hinduism, Buddhism, and other religions for the past twelve thousand years. Once again, wouldn't do anything with that one.
1: <laughs> just let that one go. Yeah, we, we don't have to bring it back. You know, it's it's just it's it's yeah. changed fundamentally. We don't need them all. I have to. Ex- we don't need all the. Symbols. I have to explain that every year because I teach world history, and when we talk about ancient Asian cultures, I'll show them pictures, and I'm like, okay, listen, I see it. You see it. It doesn't, it didn't mean back then what it means now. Okay. Like if I show them like a shrine or something, there's like a swastika on it. It's like, uh, yeah, you see it. It is what you think it is, but it's not.
0: And finally, Jay, I'm pretty sure at least we've talked about this before, either on or off the show. Would it be accurate to say that you were once part of the generation of kids who grew up watching the movie Jurassic Park, so you naturally thought that one day you would be a paleontologist who discovered dinosaur bones?
1: yeah i mean that's definitely accurate i was really obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid i had these like placemats that i would eat on with all these dinosaur names and learned how to spell all of the dinosaur names like very suspiciously early you know like like (laughs) you just because i was like he can't walk but he can spell (laughs) stegosaurus (laughs) it's like my name has three letters in the first name but i could spell like triceratops before, (laughs) before you know like um but my kids now, my two oldest, the the twins, we um, have a very generous uh, family member who's been giving us lots of hand-me-downs, and they're they have a child that. Uh, is a couple years ahead of ours, so we get a lot of clothes from them. You can see very clearly that this other child went through, like, very strong phases. So, for instance, when he was in, like, the 3T size, he was in a very large cars phase, and not general cars. I'm talking about the Pixar production Uh cars. Now, we're in the dinosaur phase, okay? So, I'm not kidding, Their drawer, their wardrobe right now, because we get so many hand-me-downs. Their wardrobe is probably like eighty percent dinosaur shirts. Okay, (laughs) and so we would put them just in their shirts, and they would go to preschool, and the teachers would be like, "Man, your kids must like love dinosaurs because they come in every day with like T-Rex shirts (laughs) and stuff." And they're just kind of whatever. Like we have dinosaur toys, they don't really play with them, you know, that much. Like they're not super into dinosaurs; they're just like whatever about dinosaurs. But they have so many dinosaur shirts that like everybody's like, "Those are the dinosaurs." kids like they've just kind of become like the kids who must love dinosaurs you won't know for years how
0: this is affecting them but it's doing something to them that's going to require some therapy (laughs) well i uh ij i actually didn't want to be a paleontologist or the other popular one for kids an astronaut i actually am on record from like third to ninth grade or something like that as saying that my future goal was to become a mayor I mean, it's still on the table, and you know,
1: like, like I probably can't go be a paleontologist. Like, I'm 34. You know, I had, like, I'd have to go back to school. It'd be a whole thing. You could, you could be a mayor. Like, there's a path here for you to do. Or I could just
0: develop the nickname, the mayor. Which would be, which would be (laughs) even better. But, but Jay, if as an adult you, like me, kind of figured that all the dinosaurs had been discovered by now, and maybe it's a good thing you weren't a paleontologist. Well, you'd be very wrong. While well, the 19th century is often referred to as the Bone Wars, a period of roughly 40 to 50 years where most of the major dinosaurs we know and love today were discovered, believe it or not, it's the time we're living in now, in the 21st century, that is seeing the greatest discovery of dinosaur bones in recorded history. And Jay, these aren't just more of the same, like another T. rex or another Triceratops. No, these are new species of dinosaurs that are being discovered. One of my go-to lines whenever I'm giving a public talk or writing a pop science article or book, says University of Edinburgh paleontologist Stephen Brousset to the Smithsonian, is that we're in the golden age of paleontology. I will say, though, as experts uncover and name new dinosaurs, Jay, they're becoming increasingly harder to pronounce. (laughs) Gone are the days of the (laughs) Triceratops. Within the last year, paleontologists have now added new dinosaurs named the Laney, the Goncocon, and the Jacopil. And, Jay, (laughs) don't let it get lost in all of this. Even finding a fossil record of something, anything, is an incredible feat. Paleontologists say that major changes in the environment over literally centuries featuring things like massive erosion have made complete fossil records really, really hard to find. Yet, despite this, new discoveries continue to pile up almost daily. And Jay, who knows what is yet to still be discovered? Some reports estimate that only about 30% of the dinosaurs that existed have been discovered. And that number could easily be much higher. And while most dinosaur finds today are of smaller dinosaurs, it's not true all the time. As recent as 2019, a new form of raptor, the, uh, here we go, the Hesperonatotheus, I don't know, like that, the, the Velociraptor is just way better. I, I, I can't, I can't fact check. We'll, we'll call it on, the on Hesper. I mean, I'm just gonna, we're just going to have to the roll Hesper with raptor it. The <laughs> Hesperaptor was discovered out west. One thing new discoveries do lead to, though, is a messy version of what we think we already know about dinosaurs. Paleontologists have redone the dinosaur family tree multiple times through the years. Sometimes finding what looked like a familiar animal actually represents an entirely new group of dinosaur. And, Jay, of course, this includes unpopular changes. Like one that hurts me to even think about is recent discoveries that have led paleontologists to rethink how the Tyrannosaurus Rex probably looked. And it uh, it feels weird
1: even saying it, Jay. He, He probably had feathers yep that's the that's the thing Jurassic Park didn't know about that when they decided to make it it makes it a little bit less intimidating little arms and little wings (laughs) (laughs) I mean this is why history is fun because you constantly get to rewrite the timeline like you think you know everything and then you find something that no one's found and you're like well I guess we have to move that timeline back several thousand years (laughs) or whatever and I do like the image of paleontologists fighting over the dinosaur timeline, though. That's a a fun image. Like a paleontologist conference (laughs) has got to just be completely wild. they're all wearing
0: those little hats you know the hats i'm talking about
1: yeah yeah like the the hats from every paleontologist in any property that's ever been portrayed
0: yeah and they (laughs) just have a bunch of beige
1: clothes everything is beige for some reason (laughs) if jurassic park was real would you go uh i mean i feel like i should have learned the lesson from all the movies because all the movies sort of have the same lesson which is don't but yeah probably would sign me up i'm going I mean, if I got to go out, like,
0: at least let me see a dinosaur. Go out that way. I'd I'd sell my house. (laughs) And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Salmons. For Jason, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.
1: Were you like completely terrified by Jurassic Park? Like, the first time you yes. watched it, like, how old were you yeah. when you watched it?
0: I, I think it was the first PG 13 movie I was allowed to watch. I was at my cousin's house, and I was older than them, so I was trying to act like I was so cool and ready for it, you know? <laughs> uh, I was, t- I, think I, I think I called my mom to come get me. I think if I snuck in a different way. Well, room. that is
1: a move that you pulled quite frequently at the slumber parties. <laughs> but um, the, uh, if you're a kid, to tell them I'm sick. <laughs> Uh, These guys are weird. I don't want to be here anymore.